please stand as you are able for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because one had heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pomphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own language, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All are amazed and perplexed, saying to another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Gary. You did well with the uh, nations list. Uh, we couldn't just ask anybody to read that. We had to ask Gary to do it. We're grateful to you and to all of you who are with us today. It's so good to be with you in worship today. I want to say a special word to those of you who are online with us. As always, it's a privilege to be in your homes with you and to share the teaching of the Word of God uh, with each of you. Thanks, uh, Jim. Thank you for sharing your prayer with us, and thank you for presiding. And Mason, uh, for the beautiful music, the praise team, and all that you all have done to lead us in worship. It is, uh, it is, a, special, it is a special joy to be with all of you in worship today. Um, if you were here last week, you know that we started this fall series called Empowered on the Book of Acts, which we... Uh, sometimes referred to as the Acts of the Apostles, but we kind of corrected ourselves last week to say that this is really Dr. Luke's sequel to his gospel that really is the Acts of the Holy Spirit in and through the lives of disciples for the continuation of the ministry of the risen Christ. And that the church today in 2021 is actually Acts 29 as the Spirit is guiding and leading and empowering us in a new day. And so we started last week with Acts chapter one, which is the preface or the introduction to the book of Acts by talking about the power to stick together. This tiny band of 120, and if you read the roster in Acts one, it included not only 11 of the 12 disciples minus Judas, but also the brothers of Jesus and likely the sisters, and also Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a, a charter member of the first century church. They stuck together. The risen one had appeared to them over a period, we're told, of 40 days, which is probably not literal, but it means a season, right? 
Kind of like Jesus in the wilderness being tempted for 40 days. This is a season of concentration, of spiritual concentration, during which the risen Christ instructed them, continued to instruct them concerning the kingdom of God. And the risen Christ gave them specific instructions prior to his ascension. He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. For when that promise is given, you will receive power. The word in Greek is dunamis. It's our word for dynamite. You will receive strength, power, capacity, ability that is not your own when the Spirit comes upon you in order to be my witnesses. The word witness and martyr are the same in the Greek language. To be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but in all of Judea, in Samaria, in the region, and to the utter ends of the earth. And they did just as Jesus commanded. They stuck together, they waited, and prayed, and Jesus kept his promise. On the day of Pentecost, which we actually celebrated in May, They were all together in one place, maybe the upper room where Jesus served the Last Supper on Maundy Thursday, maybe in the colonnade of the temple where they continued to meet after the resurrection, all together in one place, and the wind and fire fell from heaven, watch this, igniting them to go public with their witness. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in us in Acts 29 that we're living out now. While I was away on my sabbatical, I I did a good bit of reading. It's oxygen to me to do spiritual reading and reflection and to immerse oneself in Scripture. And I was reading a book by Diana Butler Bass. She's written a new book just out called Freeing Jesus in which she opens in her introductory passage of her book, with what I think is a Pentecostal experience that she had while praying in a cathedral. And this is the way she begins the book. Listen closely. My knees hurt. The cushion on the marble altar almost didn't matter. I could feel the cold in my legs, the ache of unanswered prayers. Where are you, God? I ask but there was silence. I looked up at Jesus in full triptych glory, surrounded by angels, robed in cobalt blue against a gilt background, shimmering sanctity. The small chapel in the great cathedral was one of my favorite places to pray, mostly because of this Jesus. Today, however, I was restless as I gazed intently at the massive icon of Christ. Usually the image drew me deeper toward God and the railing where I knelt was a place of awakening and wisdom. And so I said, where are you, God? Silence. Lord, I said, a quiet plea, really the most incomplete of prayers. And then I heard a voice, get me out of here, said the voice. Was someone speaking to me? I looked behind me. I looked around me. Get me out of here, the voice said again. 
I stared in the face of the icon. Jesus, is that you? Get me out of here. I heard again, more insistent now. But Lord, and suddenly the chapel again fell silent. But I know what I heard. I heard a divine demand for freedom, and I was not sure what to think. Neither did I want to tell the priest who was wandering up the aisle about the voice. I doubted the Washington Cathedral would take kindly to the Son of God looking for the exit, and so I wasn't sure what to do. Smuggling an altarpiece out of the building was not a good idea, but instead I got up and nearly bolted out, all the while envisioning how I might rescue Jesus from a cathedral. I felt bad leaving him behind. End of quote. Diana Butler Bass's witness, I think, is a Pentecost story. When the wind and fire falls on this band of disempowered Galileans who were trapped, really, in many ways, in their grief and in their what's next, suddenly they were freed to do takeout Jesus. Suddenly they were liberated to take Jesus out of the upper room, out of the synagogue, out of the temple, and into the streets of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the utter ends of the earth. And I tell you that sometimes I can hear that same voice speaking more specifically to me. Get us out of sectarianism. Get me out of your denominationalism. Get me out of your provincialism. Get me out of your institutionalism. Get me out of your partisan politicism. I hear that voice. Pentecost happens whenever the Holy Spirit of God frees us to go public with our faith as we take Jesus out and bear witness beyond the walls to God's deeds of power that are still happening in Christ Jesus in the continuation of the gospel beyond the cathedral, beyond the sanctuary, beyond the colonnade, beyond the temple, beyond the walls. And it happened on Pentecost in Jerusalem. Now, what, what I want you to note for just a moment, and I'm not going to explain the whole text. We did that in May. But I want you to notice, first of all, that the first fruit of the Holy Spirit given to the apostles and to us is speech. This is a miracle, especially who was talking? Peter. These unschooled, uneducated, unsophisticated, ordinary disciples were empowered to articulate their faith in terms that a diverse audience could understand. Gary did well with the roll call of the nations that were present on the day of Pentecost, 15 different nationalities, and it's interesting that he's going east to west as he calls these nations. This will be the direction that the missionary church will move. 15 different nationalities were on hand in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, the day that Jewish folk came together 
in order to celebrate the first fruits of the Spirit and the giving of the law at Sinai. As you can imagine, with 15 different nations, there were 15 different perspectives, 15 different worldviews, 15 different dialects, languages, and yet they all seemed to hear in language that they could comprehend. And only the Spirit of God can do that. I tell you, there are times where I shudder to think that I may be speaking, even on a day like this, to four, maybe five different generations. Some of you are not native Tennesseans. Some of you come from other places in the world and in the nation. And I shudder to think, how on earth could the Holy Spirit of God take a word from this pastor and people go home and say, I felt like he was speaking to me today. That doesn't come through human giftedness. That comes through the Holy Spirit of God. 15 different nations. I think in many ways that this is a reversal of what happened in Genesis 11. In that particular passage, when creation was young and and the dew was still wet on the grass, people still spoke one tongue. And they had a little building committee in Shinar, in the plain in the east of Shinar, and they said to one another, come, let us build ourselves a city whose tower reaches into the heavens, listen, so that we might make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered across the earth. And you remember what happened? They never finished the project. The building was never completed, but it wasn't because the technology was deficient It was because the purpose was too small so that we might make a name for ourselves. When our mission becomes more egocentric than theocentric, when our purpose becomes more self-centered than God-centered, the language becomes incoherent. Nobody can understand each other even when you're speaking English even when you're speaking Southern English. It's incoherent. A a communication arises, a gap arises, and we're scattered because when the why of our existence is more about me, is more about my agenda, my life, my freedom, my choice, my rights, then words become weapons instead of tools and speech becomes chaotic rather than constructive, and the result is always the same. There is a famine of hearing. We stop listening. Nobody is as deaf as the one who refuses to listen. I saw this on Tuesday night at the school board meeting. No, I was not present. But Sherry and I watched it, all four hours of it, six to 10 online. It reminded me a little bit of world championship wrestling. It was not the disagreement that bothered me so much. I understand differences of opinion. We know that where two or more are gathered, there will be a difference of opinion, am I right? I sometimes disagree with myself, Jim. It's hard to be me sometimes, and yet there, there is a tension that can be healthy, but this wasn't healthy. 
But it wasn't the disagreement that bothered me. It was the language. It was the speech. It was the rhetoric. It was the vitriol. It, it was the contempt, really. And especially demonizing the very ones who have been on the front lines caring for us in clinics and hospitals at great risk to themselves. At one point, the camera actually capturing someone saying to a doctor who was leaving the meeting, I know who you are and I know where you live. In a school system where our motto is to be kind, I tell you, the way we talk to each other and the way we talk about each other ultimately becomes the way we act towards each other. As goes the language, so goes the culture. And what occurred to me as I watched was not so much judgmentalism or siding, it was a deep sense of grief. The language was scattered a communication gap arise, arises and nobody is as deaf as the one who can't listen. I thought of Ephesians 4, 20, 29. You know that passage? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion in order that it may give grace to those who hear. I thought of Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to respond to everyone. I even thought of Plato, <laughs> who once said, a wise man speaks because he has something to say, but a fool speaks because he has to say something. And I think of myself on that last line. I was talking to one of my doctor friends the other day at Vanderbilt, and he told me that they'd had a special speaker in town who was with the military. He was a, a doctor who had been assigned by the military when Saddam Hussein was captured to be his doctor. <laughs> he said, it was the most difficult task I've ever been given, but he was my patient, and nothing alters my commitment to do for my patient what is in his best interest. He said, I don't get to choose who my patients are. And we don't get to choose who our neighbor is. It is a shame when you go to a board meeting and you leave Jesus at the church. It is a shame when I go to the schoolhouse or the courtroom and leave Jesus at the church. I hear the voice, get me out of here and into the office and into the hospital and into the marketplace and into your home and into your subdivision and especially onto the highway. When the truth of the matter is, I think he's already there and maybe he's wondering where we are. There's a new book out by Amanda Ripley called High Conflict. I mentioned this book last week. I think it's a must read for anybody who leads in any way. 
whether you're leading as an educator or a banker or a lawyer, whatever, I think this is a must read. In the book, Amanda Ripley shares a glossary of terms related to conflict, and she differentiates between what is good conflict and what is high conflict. I want you to watch this. Good conflict, she says, and I quote, is friction that can be serious and intense, but it leads somewhere useful. It doesn't collapse into dehumanization. It is healthy friction, or as I often say, friction becomes traction if handled with grace and self-control. And by the way, if you didn't know, self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. That's good conflict. High conflict, however, is conflict that becomes self-perpetuating and all-consuming, in which almost everybody ends up worse off. Typically, almost always, it is an us versus them conflict. And then she shares a term. She actually coins a term that I had never heard before. It's called fire starters. Fire starters are accelerants that lead conflict to explode in violence, including group identities, conflict entrepreneurs, humiliation, and corruption. Fire starters. And then I thought about this text. I thought, you know, as disciples of Jesus, we're really called to be fire starters too but not in ways that stir up the heat, the conflict, but in ways that actually bear witness to the living Christ in the midst of the conflict. The fire of Pentecost, the fire of the Spirit, actually empowers us not to run away, not just to fight, and not certainly to keep quiet, but to lean into the conflict with a witness that may actually bring about repentance, reconciliation, and restored harmony. Not because we ever agree on everything, but because we agree on something. Jesus is Lord. And in his unconditional love and mercy, which is life-changing... His presence and power then enables us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, to consider others before ourselves. And when that happens, the language becomes comprehensible again. And there's listening. In the book of Acts, there are no less than 19 speeches. I'm going to mention one next week when we talk about Acts 3. One-third of this book is made up of testimonies, sermons by the early apostles, usually generated in the heat of conflict, almost always in the heat of conflict, and then Peter speaks a word. There are eight sermons from Peter. There are nine from Paul. There's one apiece from Stephen and James, 19 witnesses, testimonies. And they always start with Scripture, as we did today, in that case from the Old Testament, as does Peter's Pentecost message. He goes to Joel chapter 2. And what they all have in common, all those testimonies have in common, is that they all point to one person. They all point to Jesus. His life, his death, 
his resurrection, his grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness for us, and his spirit in us. And God forgive us, sometimes our witness, sometimes my preaching becomes more of a moral whipping than it is a proclamation. And the witness of the church, though it contains moral imperatives, it is not first of all about what we ought to do for God. It is what God has already done for us in Christ Jesus. What has he done for us? While we were yet sinners, Christ loved us and gave his life for us. And when we repent and are baptized for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus, we are empowered by a spirit to live a life that looks like Jesus in the way that we walk, in the way that we talk, in the way that we serve, and in the way that we love. You're a witness. I close with one word from Madeline LaEngle, who wrote a book, some of you have seen this movie, A Wrinkle in Time. Wonderful writer, wonderful Christian, who articulates well what it means to be a witness. Listen closely. We do not draw people to Christ by loudly discrediting what they believe or by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are. We draw people to Christ by showing them a light that is so beautiful that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. That's our task. When the power of the Spirit gets freed up in us, we're a witness. We're a light. And Jesus said, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to God in heaven. That's what a witness does. That's what a witness is. That's who you are. That's who I am. That's who we are when we hear a voice that says, get me out of here and get me into the world. To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may it be so in us. Amen.